Well, church, go ahead and grab your Bibles out, if you would, and uh, open up with me to the book of Romans. We're going to be in Romans chapter 1 together this morning. And uh, as you turn there, let's go again uh, to the Lord for a word of prayer. Father, we are thankful for uh, Christ's shed blood for us this morning. Uh, as we just sang, our hope is not in any good that we have done. All of our hope and peace is in Christ's blood. All of our claims to righteousness are actually claims to Christ's righteousness. And it, it is ours by faith alone. And so, Lord, we come clinging to Christ. Uh, we come looking to Christ. And uh, we come believing that you still speak to your people through the power of your word. And so, Lord, I pray that, that you would open eyes and you would open hearts. And, uh, Lord, that we would be reminded afresh of what you've done for us through your son as we turn our attention to Romans. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, church, just to remind you, if you happen to be visiting with us, our normal pattern as a church is we go verse by verse through books of the Bible. And one of the main reasons we do that is it's, it's meant to make clear where our authority comes from as a church. The authority doesn't come from the pastor. The authority doesn't come from some board within the life of the church. The authority rests in God's word. And going verse by verse through scripture is one of the ways that um, it helps make sure that I'm tethered to the word. So that what I'm preaching, hopefully you can see, is coming from what God has given us in scripture. And I, I mentioned last week that it is a daunting task to me to begin a study in the book of Romans uh, for several reasons. One, Romans is such a long letter. Romans is the longest letter we have from the Apostle Paul. It's over 7,100 words long. So it's a long book, and it is also a, a very heavy book. If you think of the different books of the Bible being like different uh, mountain ranges rising up and teaching us about God, you have the Rockies and the uh, Smokies and the Alps. Well, you might say that Romans is the, the Himalayas of those mountain ranges. It is the one that covers the most and rises the highest, and, and some would even say the middle chapter of Romans, Romans chapter 8, is the Mount Everest of that mountain range. That it's one of the chapters, maybe the chapter in the Bible that, that rises the highest. Because what you see in Romans is Romans pulls together so many of the themes that dominate the Bible. So, so there's God and man and Adam and sin and law and faith and grace and justification and election and the ministry of the Holy Spirit and you could just keep going. So there's just so much in Romans. But it's not just an informational book. Romans is a transformational book. That's another one of the things that makes it so daunting is Romans is the book that God has used so often over the years to bring people to faith in Jesus. So many of the prominent church leaders, Christian leaders from the past that we look to were saved through Romans. Maybe the most influential theologian of the first 1500 years of church history was Augustine. Augustine's mother was a devout follower of Jesus, but Augustine did not adhere to her faith. He had rejected her faith and really for the first, I don't know, up to 30 years or so, Augustine lived his life following mainly his sexual appetites. Um, he, he famously prayed, God, make me chaste, just not yet. 
That, that's how Augustine lived his life. He pursued his sexual pleasures, had a child out of wedlock. And it was when he was in his early 30s that the Lord began to convict Augustine about his sin. And one afternoon, he was, he was sitting out in the garden at a friend's house. And he, he could hear the kids next door reciting the lines from a nursery rhyme. They kept repeating this line over and over. And, it, and the line was, take up and read, take up and read. And it struck him that maybe he should do that. And so he grabbed a scroll that the friend had that had a portion of the book of Romans in the scroll. And as he read Romans, God changed his heart and he was saved. Or, or over a thousand years after that, there was a, a German monk who was a Bible professor at the University of Wittenberg. And this monk was convinced that when you came across that phrase, the righteousness of God in the Bible, that the righteousness of God was emphasizing the bar of righteousness that God had set for us, this bar that we're supposed to clear by our own good works. And he had come to see that it was impossible. He felt like that righteous standard of God was set so high, we could never clear it, and he had begun to lose hope. And it was as he read Romans chapter 1, actually the verses that I started the service with today, it was in reading Romans 1 that Martin Luther came to see that the righteousness God requires of us, he gives to us as a gift through faith. And Luther was saved. Just a couple hundred years after that, one of the key preachers of the first great awakening was John Wesley. And Wesley tells the story that this is as an adult that one night he reluctantly went with some other people to a church service. And as he was sitting in that church service, the speaker that night began to read a portion of Martin Luther's commentary on Romans. And as that portion of Romans was being explained, Wesley's heart was gripped by the gospel and Wesley was saved. I say that just to make a point and I could keep going. That so many people over the years, prominent Christians, God has used Romans to bring them to faith. This is why John Chrysostom, the church leader from the 5th century, every single week, John Chrysostom would have somebody read the book of Romans to him out loud. So he had the book of Romans read to him every single week of his ministry. Listen to a few quotes on it. This is how Martin Luther describes Romans. He writes... Romans is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. It can never be read or pondered too much, and the more it's dealt with, the more precious it becomes, and the better it tastes. Here's the way John Calvin described it. He said, if we have gained a true understanding of this epistle... We have an open door to all the most profound treasures of Scripture. And that's a remarkable thing to say. Calvin's saying, if we can understand the book of Romans, it's like, it's like the rest of the Bible will open up to us. That's how profound this book is. So that's enough talking about it. Why don't we start reading it? If your Bible's open to Romans 1, we're going to read the first seven verses of it together this morning. Romans chapter 1. This is the Apostle Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he writes, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, 
concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by which, excuse me, by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we've received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name among whom you also are the called of Christ Jesus. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what we just read is the introduction to the book of Romans. And not only is Romans the longest letter from Paul, this is also the longest introduction of any of Paul's letters. Just the introduction is loaded with truth. It's like Paul in the introduction is is planting some of the seeds that he's going to bring to to full bloom later on in this letter. And so I don't want to rush through it. So we're going to take two weeks. This is probably not boding well for how long the study is going to take. We're going to take two weeks to cover these seven verses. And we're going to look at it under three headings. Number one, I want to talk a little bit about the author. You'll notice that Paul begins the letter with his name. And this is, of course, customary of how, in how you wrote letters. Every culture has a certain way of letter writing. We've talked about this before. The customary way of writing letters in our culture is you start with the name of the person you're writing to. So I might write, Dear Will. And then, then after that, we'd have some kind of greeting. I hope you and your family are doing well. And then there's the body of the letter. And then oddly, what's the very last thing we put in our letters? The very last thing is who it's from. Now that's odd because what's the first thing you want to know if you open a letter? The first thing you want to know is who is this letter from? So in Paul's day, they wrote letters in a much more practical way. They started with who the letter was from. Then they would list who the letter was to. And then a greeting. And that's what Paul's giving us here. So... This letter is from Paul. It's not, it's not written by Paul. We'll, we'll find out at the end of it that Paul actually did a, he used a, a scribe. This was a very common practice in Paul's day because you had limited, uh, uh, scrolls were hard to come by. They were very expensive. So sometimes you would get somebody who was a little bit more skilled of a writer. And Paul dictated this letter as someone transcribed it for him. And let's just think for a minute about Paul. Paul, of course, was his Roman name. His Jewish name was Saul. He's from, we find out in Philippians, from the tribe of Benjamin. And the most famous person from the tribe of Benjamin was the first king of Israel was from Benjamin. And that's who Saul is named after, the famous king from that line. And Saul had the distinct privilege in his day of being a citizen of the Roman Empire. That was unusual. The Roman Empire was massive, And less than 10% of the people in the empire actually were counted citizens of Rome. And Paul had that unique privilege. As you read through the book of Acts, that advantage comes in handy several times in Paul's life. So he's a Roman citizen. And maybe, maybe the biggest advantage that Paul had is he had parents who were devoted to their faith. I mean, from the time that Paul was born, they made sure that young Saul was kept in step with the law of God. They even made sure he received the very best religious education possible. Saul was trained at the feet of one of the most 
revered rabbis of his day. And it wasn't forced upon him. What you learn about Saul is he loved it. He loved his faith. He loved studying his faith. He took to it very well. So that as he became an adult, he actually became a Pharisee. The Pharisees were the most devout, the most strict sect within Judaism. So he wasn't just a Jew. He was the most devout, the most strict, the most fastidious. And with his commitment and his sharp mind, he began to rise through the ranks of Judaism. Well, as this is happening, Christianity, Christ has died and risen and word is beginning to spread. And as Christianity begins to spread, Saul, Paul, hates it. Because rather than seeing Christianity as the fulfillment of Judaism, he saw Christianity as a threat to Judaism. He, he felt like the Christians were pulling people away from Judaism. They, they have the audacity to say that this Jesus who was crucified is the Jewish Messiah. And so Saul made it his mission to stamp out Christianity. You'll remember we, we've been reading in our, our church's Bible plan. If you're following it, we're in Acts right now. And we just came through that section where we find out that Saul was actually complicit in the murder of one of the early Christians. He is there and signing off when Stephen is stoned to death. And after that point, it seems like Saul becomes a kind of uh, one-man SWAT team, hunting down and arresting Christians. He's so zealous in it that he gets permission from the religious leaders to travel all the way up to Damascus looking for Christians. Now what's striking about that is Damascus wasn't even an Israelite city. That there was a good-sized Jewish population in Damascus, but it's in Syria, not in Israel. And so Paul, he is so devoted, he gets permission to travel all the way up to Damascus just to see if there are any Christians in the Jewish community there so he can arrest them and drag them back to Jerusalem and make them face charges for what he thinks is blasphemy. And of course, you know the story. It's, it's as he's making his way to Damascus that Saul runs into Jesus like a brick wall. Jesus appears to Saul. And to use Ezekiel language, he takes out the heart of stone and he gives him a heart of flesh. And Saul's eyes are opened to the truth and he believes. And this man who just a few minutes before was the biggest enemy of the Christian faith instantly becomes the biggest advocate of the Christian faith. And he spends the rest of his life traveling all across the Roman world, preaching the gospel and planting churches. And it's not hard to figure out where in that ministry he wrote the letter of Romans. So Romans comes at the end of Paul's third missionary journey. If you remember that story, one of the things that Paul is doing on his third missionary journey is he's collecting a love offering. You read about it in, in uh, 2 Corinthians. He's collecting an offering from the Gentile churches that he's wanting to carry with him back to Jerusalem. The, the Christians in Jerusalem are under heavy persecution. They're suffering. And so he's collecting a love offering from the Gentile churches to carry back and give to these suffering Christians in, in Jerusalem. And his hope is that this love offering will forge a bond, that it'll strengthen the solidarity between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Well, it's on his way back that he stops 
in Greece. He actually spends three months in Greece in the city of Corinth. And it's while Paul is in Corinth that he writes this letter to the Romans. This is somewhere around the year 57 AD, somewhere between 55 and 59 AD when he writes this letter. And this is happening at a turning point in Paul's ministry. Now follow with me on on how Paul's ministry worked. For the first probably 10 plus years of Paul's ministry, he focuses all his attention on the eastern part of the Roman Empire. Remember now, Roman Empire stretches from the Middle East all the way to the west coast of Spain. It is just massive. And so for the first 10 years, he's spending all of his time on the eastern part of the Roman Empire. So that by the end of it, there's, there's churches in Israel, in the Middle East, there are churches in Syria, there are churches all across modern day Turkey. Paul even crossed the Aegean Sea and churches are planted all across modern day Greece. So, so by this point in Paul's ministry, there are, there are these key gospel outposts all over the eastern part of the Roman Empire. So what that means is, if Paul changes his ministry to another direction, the gospel will keep ringing out because there are solid churches now that have been planted. So, so now that the gospel is entrenched in the eastern part of the Roman Empire, Paul's plan now is to turn his attention to the western part of the Roman Empire. That's what's happening when he's writing Romans. Well, the gateway to the western part of the Roman Empire was the city of Rome. He's going to have to go through Rome to go from there across France and over into Spain. And Paul had always wanted to go to Rome. He wanted to preach the gospel in the nerve center of the empire. But Paul knows that to do this, this is a pretty ambitious work, to go into new territory where he's never been, to preach the gospel to people who he had never met. He knows he's going to need help. If you've read through Paul's letters or Acts, you know as as he's doing his ministry in the east, he has scores of people helping him. So many many ministry partners. He has churches that are sending money to Paul to to support him. The church of Antioch played a key role in sending him out and caring for him. Well, he knows if he's going to continue this ministry in the west, he needs help. He needs partners. He needs support. Well, he has heard that there is a, a strong group of Christians in the city of Rome. And Paul's hope is the Christians in Rome will partner with him in this work of carrying the gospel to the West. But the problem is, he's never met these people in Rome. And so what Paul is doing in this letter, he knows that in order for these people to partner with him in a gospel work, they need to be unified on what the gospel is. So Paul writes the book of Romans to lay out for these Christians in Rome what the gospel is that he's committed his life to. What, what is this gospel that Paul wants to see carried to the western reaches of the empire? Listen to the way John Stott explains what the book of Romans is. Stott writes that Romans is the fullest, plainest, grandest statement of the gospel in the New Testament. So, so Paul is just laying out in crystal clear detail what the gospel message is. Now let me take a step back and give you some information about the church of Rome that he's wanting to partner with. From everything you read, it doesn't seem like any of the prominent first century church leaders have been to Rome at this point. None of the, uh, none of the apostles have been to Rome, which means 
that the gospel has gotten to Rome and a church has been planted in Rome through the work of regular run-of-the-mill Christians like us. So somewhere along the line, regular Christians, it, it might date back to Pentecost because we find out in Acts that there were people from Rome who had traveled to Jerusalem for Pentecost. And it could be that some of them heard the gospel when Peter preached it and were converted. And they've carried the gospel with them back to Rome. So by the time Paul writes this letter, there's a sizable number of Christians in the city of Rome. Now initially, most of the Christians in Rome were Jewish. There's a, a big Jewish community in Rome. Most of the earliest Christians were Jewish. But something important happened in the year 49 AD. So... So the Jews in Rome who were committed to Judaism hated the Jewish Christians in Rome. They hated these people who were part of the Jewish community who believed in Jesus. In fact, the animosity was so intense that finally the Roman emperor kicked all of the Jews out of Rome. In 49 AD, the emperor Claudius evicted All of the Jews from the city of Rome. In fact, there's a connection. In the book of Acts, Paul uh, meets a Christian couple named Aquila and Priscilla in Corinth. And we're told that they were in Corinth because of this edict. They had been in Rome before. They had been kicked out under this edict. And that's why they had traveled over to the city of Corinth. Well, imagine what that means. All the, The church in Rome had been mostly Jewish. Well, now all the Jews are kicked out. And all that's left are Gentile Christians. So over the next few years, as the the gospel continues to be preached in Rome and the church continues to grow in Rome, well, now the church is entirely a Gentile church. It's only Gentiles who are coming to faith in Christ. The number of Gentile believers in Rome is swelling. Well, when the emperor died and that edict died with him, Jews started trickling back into Rome. Well, as Jewish Christians came back into Rome, they're now coming back into a church where they're not the majority anymore. They're the minority. It's a majority Gentile church now. And so there's, there's tension now in the Roman church between Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians. And that's why as we get on into Rome, you'll see Paul address the tension. Paul will talk about some of the issues that are going on. So here's what Paul knows. Paul knows The only way this church in Rome will ever be unified, the only way this church will ever be effective in partnering for the gospel ministry is if they have roots that run deep in the gospel. And so what Paul's trying to do in Romans is he's trying to make sure that they have deep gospel roots. But remember, he's never met these people. That shines a lot of light on Romans. This is, this is actually the only letter Paul writes to a church that he, where he didn't plant the church or one of his close associates didn't plant it. Every other that Paul, every other letter Paul writes, he writes to a church that he personally planted or one of his close friends or associates had planted it. That's not the the case with the Roman church. So this is the only letter he's writing where he doesn't have that sort of personal connection to the church. And that's why I mentioned a second ago that this is the longest introduction of any of Paul's letters. Well, that's why. Paul's taking some extra time in this letter to introduce himself. They, they of course, have heard the name Paul. They know about Paul. But Paul's taking extra time to make sure they know what the message is that he's committed his life to. And, this is important, 
to make sure they know what Paul's role is. Because Paul's not writing this letter as a regular church planter. He's writing this letter as an apostle. And apostles carry a unique authority in the life of the church. And so he takes time in these opening verses to uh, explain how he came to be an apostle and emphasize his role as an apostle. So what's happening in these, this is just to sum it up, what's happening in these first seven verses is Paul is outlining the message he's committed to and he's outlining the role, the office that God has put him in. And did you notice in verse one how Paul attaches three phrases to his name? He's introducing himself to these people And if there are three things he wants them to know about him, here are the three things. First, and most importantly, Paul says that he is a bond servant. That's the word doulos. A bond servant of Jesus Christ. And if you're familiar with that word, you know that that a doulos is really just a slave. That's how the word could be translated. He is a slave of Jesus Christ. Now remember... Paul is writing into a world where slavery was everywhere. I know we have the tendency today to think that slavery somehow started in Western world. But slavery was everywhere in the Roman Empire. In fact, the population of Rome, Rome was a huge city at this time. And and Rome was made up of almost one-third slaves. So a third of the people living in the city of Rome in Paul's day were slaves. These people know how slavery works. So when Paul starts by identifying himself as a slave of Jesus, they know what Paul's saying. They know what it means to be a slave. Slaves are owned by another. Slaves don't get to fulfill their own will. Slaves don't set their own agendas. Slaves are confined to the agenda set by their masters. And that's the first thing that Paul wants them to know about him, is he is a slave of the Lord Jesus. In other words, Jesus is not just Paul's co-pilot. Jesus is not just Paul's moral example. Jesus is Paul's master. That means Jesus has absolute authority in Paul's life. Jesus is the one who gets to set the agenda. And let me just add, the way Paul describes himself here isn't just unique to Paul. This is what it means to be a Christian. Being a Christian means we are slaves of Jesus Christ. We are owned by Jesus. First, we are owned by Jesus just by rights of creation. He is the one who knitted us together in our mother's wombs. He's the one who continues to put breath into our lungs. But if you're a Christian, not only does he own you by means of creation, he also owns you by means of redemption. You and I were slaves to sin. And we couldn't break free from it. This is what we were. We we were in chains to, to a broken worldview and in chains to false religion and in chains to self-righteousness and in chains like Augustine maybe, in chains to our sinful passions and we couldn't get out of it. And Jesus 
shed his blood to rescue us from that. Jesus laid his life down to buy us out of the slave market so that being a Christian means we, we doubly belong to him now. He owns us. He's not just my advisor. He's not just my counselor. He is my master. Being a Christian means there is an authority over me. I'm not my authority. I'm not the one who gets to decide what I think is right and wrong for me or how I want to define truth. Jesus is the authority. Jesus lays out who He is, what I must believe, how He's called me to live. So when Paul begins his explanation, his identity, the most important thing they can know about him, and Christian, the most important thing anybody can know about you is you are a slave of Jesus Christ. That's the first thing he says. Second thing he says is that he is called to be an apostle. Now there are two important words there. First, what is an apostle? The, the word apostle can be used in a, a kind of general sense, just to describe a messenger, someone who sit out kind of like an ambassador. And it's used that way a few times in the Bible. You think of it like a, a lowercase a apostle. can't just be generically somebody who's sent out. But the word apostle is also used in the Bible in a more technical sense, to refer to a specific office in the life of a church. So think of it as lowercase a apostle, just kind of generally sent out. Uppercase a apostle is a particular office in the life of the church. So, so what is an apostle? How did you become an apostle? Well, first, the apostles were all men who were directly appointed to that office by Jesus directly commissioned to it by Jesus and taught by Jesus. Listen to Luke 6. Luke chapter 6 verse 13 says, And when it was day, he, he is Jesus, when it was day, Jesus called his disciples to himself. And from them, he chose twelve whom he also named apostles. Do you see what's happening? Jesus gathers together this large number of disciples. There's lots of people at this point who have attached to Jesus, who are following Jesus. But from this large number of disciples, Jesus personally selects 12 men who he gives the title apostle. So apostles are men who are directly chosen, commissioned by Jesus. Then... The apostles also, this is after the death and resurrection of Jesus, the apostles were men who were all eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus. You get that clearly in Acts chapter 1. To be an apostle, you had to be an eyewitness to the resurrected Jesus. And then finally, you find out in 2 Corinthians 12 that there were also signs that accompanied apostles. There were miraculous giftings that God gave to the apostles that served as a validation, a verification for the role that the Lord had put them in. Now just to pause. It should be clear to you just from the criteria that there are no apostles today. 
There are no men today who were eyewitnesses to the... Re- Paul, in fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, is listing who Jesus appeared to. And he said he appeared to all the apostles. And then Paul says, and last of all, he appeared to me. Okay, so there's, there's no men today who are eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus. There are no men today who Jesus hand-selected, called, and commissioned, and taught to this role, who then have these miraculous giftings to validate that, that role. Okay? This, is, this is an office in the church that ended with the death of John the Apostle toward the end of the first century. But Paul was in that unique role of being an apostle. And apostles held tremendous authority, hold, I should say, tremendous authority in the life of the church. Just one example of that is think of Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul says that the church has Jesus as its cornerstone, right? We're founded on Jesus. He sets the lines for the church. But then Paul says the church is founded on the apostles and prophets, So the apostles and prophets serve as the foundational work that the church is built on. They provided, in other words, the foundation of revelation that the church is built upon. They received and communicated direct, infallible revelation from God. And they had authority in the life of the church at large. They spoke, taught, guided under the authority of Jesus in the church's life. Okay, that's the role that Paul was in. Again, so that means there are no apostles. It doesn't matter what your cousin's pastor calls himself. He is not an apostle. There's a limited number of apostles who served a foundational role in the life of the church. And Paul wants them to know he's one of those men. He is called to be an apostle. And I should spend a minute on that word called. I'm going to spend a lot more time on this word next week because it shows up again in verses 6 and 7. So how did Paul become an apostle? Did he submit a resume? Did he go in for an interview? How did he become an apostle? He was called. That means he was divinely summoned. When you see the word call in the Bible, it is not an invitation. It is a summons. Jesus did not show up asking for Paul to do this. Jesus didn't show up on the road to Damascus and go, Paul, man, I could really use some help if you're up to it. He did not show up asking questions. Jesus showed up making demands. He claimed Paul. He appointed Paul. He commissioned Paul. That's why Paul was an apostle. Now get why he's saying this. Why is Paul taking time to emphasize he's an apostle? Because he wants this church to know that he's not writing this letter as a normal Christian. This isn't a friend-to-friend letter. He's writing this letter as an apostle of Jesus Christ. So what he says in this letter comes with the full authority of King Jesus behind it. That's what he's saying. There's one other phrase that he uses to describe himself. Third, he says that he was separated to the gospel of God. That means Paul was set apart for this gospel ministry. When had he been set apart for this gospel ministry? Well, I'll let Paul explain it. Listen to what he says in Galatians 1 using this same kind of language. Galatians 1.15, Paul writes, But when it pleased God 
who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace. When had Paul been separated by God? From his mother's womb. That means Paul being an apostle wasn't a spur of the moment decision from God. Paul was an apostle as part of God's divine plan. Now here's what I want you to notice about all three of these phrases. So as Paul is, as he's identifying himself to this church, do you notice how all three of these phrases don't tell us who Paul is as much as they tell us whose Paul is? Do you see that? He's a slave of Jesus. He's an apostle because he was called to that by God. He has a gospel ministry because he was separated from his mother's womb for this gospel ministry. So as Paul is explaining who he is, as Paul is identifying himself, the most important thing they can know about him is where he stands before God. This is what God has done for Paul. This is what God has made Paul. Okay, that's Paul. And you'll notice that his ministry is rooted in this message he calls the gospel. And that leads us to the second point, which we'll only barely dip our toe in this morning. Secondly, I want to see the message. Paul's ministry is centered. He's been set apart for the gospel, Paul says in verse 1. So what, what is the gospel exactly? You probably know it is the Greek word euangelion. You've probably heard that before because the Latinized version is evangel. So what is euangelion? Angelion means announcement, message, news. And then that prefix, e-u. Think of words that we have that have that prefix E-U on it. Like, like if you go to a funeral and somebody gives a eulogy, what's a eulogy? That's when you speak some good word about the person. So, so euangelion means good announcement, good message, good news. And the way this was often used in Paul's day was if, if a king had led the army to fight some battle off in a distant land somewhere. Of course, the people at home had no way of keeping up with how the battle was going. Well, if the king and the army won the battle, if the enemy was defeated, if the land was conquered, the king would send back an announcement to the people back home, letting them know what had been won. And that announcement was the euangelion, the good news. And notice that Paul describes it as the, the gospel, the good news of God. Meaning, it is the good news of what God has won. It's the good news of what God has done for us in Jesus. The gospel is not advice for us to follow. The gospel is an announcement from God about what he's done for us. And it's, it's good news that changes everything. Imagine it this way. Imagine a, a prison camp at the end of World War II that has hundreds of American POWs held in it. Okay, so you've got fences around it and razor wire and uh, armed guards marching around the perimeter of it. And inside you have these prisoners of war in 
terrible conditions, living in squalor. It's, they're filthy and they're malnourished and morale is sinking. But imagine that one of the men in that camp manages to smuggle in a shortwave radio. And one night at bedtime, the men are gathered around and they have the radio on and they hear news on the radio that the Allied forces have broken through the enemy lines. The decisive battle has been won. And, and the, the Allied army is just miles away. It's just a matter of hours, maybe a matter of days before the camp is going to be liberated. But the battle has already been won. So imagine these men in this camp. Now they cheer and they laugh and they're patting each other on the back. And meanwhile, the guards outside are watching this and, and they're bewildered by it. What happened? Nothing has changed inside the camp. So why are they suddenly celebrating? And of course... What's changed, what's changed is they've heard good news that has changed everything. Well, that, that's the position that we're in as Christians. We, we still live in a world that is marred by sin. We still live in a world that is hard and it is ugly and it is filled with evil. But we have heard a good announcement that has changed everything. Our God in Christ has won the decisive battle for our souls. Our sin debt has been paid in full by the work that Jesus did at the cross. The, the grave has been conquered by Jesus' resurrection. Our eternity has been secured. And notice, this is not the gospel of man, it's the gospel of God. This isn't our solution to how to work our way back to God. This is God's solution. This is the announcement of what God has done for us in Jesus. The victory that's been won. The debt that has been paid. That's the message. The gospel of God. It's a message that's provided by God. The work's done by God. And, and you could also say it's the gospel of God in that the ultimate purpose of the gospel is to bring us back to God. Here's the way Peter says it. Listen to 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 3.18, Peter writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Did you hear that? Jesus suffered for sins. The just one died for those of us who are unjust, why? Did he do this to bring us to a more fulfilled life? Or did he do this to bring us ultimately to heaven? What does, Paul, what does Peter say? That he did this to bring us to God. It, our sin has to be dealt with because our sin stands as this massive barrier between us and God. God hates it. God's offended by it. And God will judge it. But Jesus went to the cross to bear our sins on his shoulders. He, at the cross, took our sins out of the way so that through him we get back to God. We're brought back to the God we were made for. One more thing. Notice what he says about the gospel in verse 2. He's separated to the gospel of God, which, the which is the gospel, which he promised before, through his prophets, in the Holy Scriptures. That means the gospel that Paul preached, the gospel that we preach, 
wasn't something new. It was promised in the Old Testament. That's why almost all of the New Testament writers quote extensively from the Old Testament. Think of why they're doing that. They want to make sure we understand that the good news is not new news. It's this news that God has been telling and foretelling for eons. From the very beginning of the Bible, from Genesis 3, God had said that there would come a descendant of Eve, a seed of the woman, who would crush the serpent's head. From the very beginning, God had said there would come a seed of Abraham, through whom all the nations of the world would be blessed. From the early chapters of the Bible, God said that there would come a descendant of David, who would sit on the throne forever. God had said that there's going to come this suffering servant who would be wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. So the gospel that Paul preached that we cling to was not a message that was created out of new cloth. This is a message that is tied to, built on the Old Testament scriptures. So this is why as a church, we we don't try to dismiss the Old Testament. We're not trying to unhitch from the Old Testament. We hold to a gospel that is anchored on, rooted in, built upon Old Testament scriptures. Old Testament is promises made. New Testament is promises being kept. And there's something important we're told about the scriptures here. Did you notice how he describes it? He says, which he promised before through his prophets... In the Holy Scriptures. Now, who is the he at the beginning of that verse? He promised before through his prophets. Well, it's going to the end of verse 1. Separated to the gospel of God. So God promised through the prophets in the Scriptures. So then what are the Scriptures? Well, they come to us through prophets, okay? But ultimately, where do the Scriptures come from? God promised through the, script, through the prophets in the Scripture. Meaning that the Scriptures are ultimately God speaking. That's why Paul in verse 2 refers to the Scriptures as holy Scriptures. They're not holy because of the men who wrote them. They're holy because of the God who inspired them. Right? This is Paul in 2 Timothy 3 saying that all scripture is breathed out by God. So connect all the dots. It is the gospel of God. God is the one who did the work. God is the one who communicates it. And God is the one who has now revealed it to us in the scriptures. So it is the gospel of God communicated through scriptures. And Paul's life had been radically changed by this good news. And that's the point of it, right? Go, go back to that scene I was just describing. Imagine again that prison camp. And imagine a soldier sitting in that little group hearing the news on that shortwave radio that the battle's been won and their freedom is at hand. And imagine that soldier not being changed by it. No, if he hears it and believes it, that news changes everything. And that's the way the gospel works. God has provided the righteousness that we need through the sinless life of Jesus in our place. God has paid our massive sin debt through Jesus' death on the cross. 
God has defeated our greatest final enemy, death, through Jesus' resurrection from the grave. So through Jesus, now people who were outcast and enemies of God are brought near. We're reconciled to the God who made us. You can't hear that and believe it and not be changed by it. So listen, hear it and believe. Hear it, don't just hear it, hear it and believe. God has won the battle. God has paid the debt. Believe, put your trust in this Jesus. Let's bow together. I'll give you a few minutes to go to the Lord in your seat yourself. And if your faith is in Jesus, I would encourage you to take a minute and go to the Lord in prayer and thank God for this good news. Thank God for what he's accomplished, for the battle he's won, for the debt he's paid. And remind yourself of where we now stand as believers, that we are not our own. We've been bought with a price. So ask God to help you live as a bond slave of the Lord Jesus. And if you're here and this does not describe your life, you have made some intellectual profession of faith in your life, but there has never been any mark of living like someone who has Jesus as master. Never been any real mark in your life that your life has been changed by the best news there is that you've lived for yourself. Let this be the morning that you repent of that, to call your sin what it is. Look to Christ. Put your faith in him and what he's done for you.